Well, good morning, family. Good to see you guys. Well, some of you. It's good to see some of you, I should say. Don't worry, you'll get that on the way home, okay? Um, I am really excited this morning because we are starting our new series today. I'm pretty pumped about it. It's called Meals with Jesus. And we are, we talked a little bit about this last week. We're looking at uh, the meals that Jesus ate in the book of Luke to see what we can learn about the grace that he gives, the community that he is creating, and the mission that he's on. That's what we're about in this series. So if you would, open your Bibles up to Luke chapter 5. That's the uh, first meal we're going to look at. Luke chapter 5. If if you need a Bible, just raise your hand. We can uh, get one to you. Um, But uh, Luke chapter 5 is where we're going to be. If you're not familiar with the Bible, maybe you're not a Christian or you're a new believer, Luke is in the New Testament, so it's at the beginning, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and uh, uh, you can look at the table of contents or just tap somebody, they'll show you where Luke is, okay? So we're going to start in Luke chapter 5, verse 27, and we'll go to 32, a little shorter passage than we're used to, and then I'm going to pray together, pray for us. After this... He went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we're here today because we need to hear from you. We need to hear you speaking to us, Lord. So Lord, we just pray right now that Holy Spirit, you would come and uh, you would come in power. You'd speak through uh, the word of God that you would... Speak to our very hearts, Lord, and change our lives. Lord, let us be like Levi today. Let us, when we see you today in your word, when we hear your voice speaking to us, that we would rise up and we would follow you. Help us follow you because in you is life. And nowhere else. We love you and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So on the home repair show, This Old House, there's a segment called What Is It? Have you guys seen This Old House? Do you even know what I'm talking about? One person? Bunch, okay, there you go. Thank you. I like a little participation. That's great. So it's called, the segment's called uh, uh, What Is This? Okay, what is it? And there's several men here. There's, there are contractors, there's repairmen, okay, construction workers, and they all get in this little, uh, if you've seen the show, they get in this like wood shop or a little workshop. And so the host brings out this tool, and he lays it on the counter, and they all go around, they try to describe, what they try to figure out what, 
what is that tool? What is that item? What does it do? We're trying to figure out what it is and how do you use it? What does it do? And they all go into these like really elaborate stories and come up with different names for it and it's pretty detailed and they're always wrong. They have no idea what this is, okay? But the results are pretty humorous if you've seen the, the, the segment. And then the, the, the host comes out and gives the big reveal. This is actually what it is, okay? This is actually what it does. Through Jesus Christ, God is using a powerful tool and a precious gift to transform the world. And it's called grace, guys. It's called grace. In this passage, Luke is telling us that God has given this unbelievably powerful tool of grace to the church. Put it in our hands. Isn't that amazing? However, like these men here in this old house, we don't always know what it's for or how it works. We kind of look at God's grace and go, it's good. What is it? I mean, I know it's good, but what is it? What does it do? What is it for? What's its purpose? So we get scared to use it, don't we? After all, grace is extremely powerful, like a big power tool. It's really powerful. I mean, we don't want to, like, get it out, get it it away from us, get loose. Grace is extremely rare. It's very precious. It's very valuable. What if it gets bent up? What if it gets dirty from being used so much in the real world? We don't, we don't understand this, so what do we do? We keep God's grace hung up on the wall in the workshop. Grace gets locked behind the doors of Sunday morning service. Out of use of real live work. And that's where it stays. Luke tells us in this passage what God's grace is for and how it works. God's grace is meant to transform lives by being spread around, not contained. That's the big idea I want you guys to get today. If you don't hear anything else I say, I want you to hear that. God's grace is made to transform lives by being spread around, not contained, not sequestered. I want to talk about two ways that grace spreads and how it transforms our lives. Grace spreads to the undeserving. Grace spreads to the undeserving. Look at verses 27 and 28 here. It's on the screen. After this, he, Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. He obeyed. He did exactly what Jesus told him to do. It's amazing. One of the characteristics of God's grace that makes it so powerful, so life-changing, is that it is available to people who do not deserve it. They do not deserve it. That, in fact, is the very definition of grace. It is a getting a good thing that we do not deserve, we did not work for, we did not earn. That's grace. Jesus calls Levi to follow him. And that doesn't just simply mean, like, literally, like, walk behind him. I mean, it is. It's like, get, live, live with me, go with me. But it, that's not all that it means. That means he's telling him, learn, he wants him to learn from him. 
He wants them to trust him. Guys, he's basically saying, I want you to be my disciple. I want you to be a learner of me and, and what I do and what I say and how I live. Be a disciple. Jesus has been going around his hometown in Galilee claiming to be the son of God. He's claimed to be bringing the kingdom of God into this world. That's what's happening in the earlier chapters before this meal takes place. And that's important because he says, after this, right? Well, well, after what? After Jesus has gone around saying, I am the son of God. I am God and I am bringing the kingdom into the world. Jesus has been going into church services. He's been walking in church services. Excuse me, can I grab that Bible real quick? And, and he'll go over and he grabs a scroll, the scripture, he unrolls it, he reads it, and he's saying, this is fulfilled right now in me. And he wasn't being arrogant. Now, if, I, if you say that, if I say that, that's pride, right? That's arrogant. See, this prophecy, Isaiah, he's talking about the kingdom of God's coming. Now is the time. Talk about the day of the Lord. Today is the day. And I'm, I, I'm the fulfillment of that. He's going around casting out demons, and demons are saying, you're the son of God. And he's saying, shh, 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 not yet, not yet. He's God. He's God. He heals a leper right before this meal. By the way, that's an incurable disease. He cures the incurable disease. He's God, and he's bringing the kingdom. Right? And right before this meal takes place in chapter 5, Jesus heals a lame man. But here's the kicker. He only heals him to prove that he actually already forgave his sins. That's the only reason why he healed him. He came to forgive his sins. But he just wants us to know that his sins really are forgiven, that he's God. Because only God can forgive sin. Man can't forgive sin. Only God can absolve someone of their sin. And he heals them just to prove that he has actually forgiven his sin. Is this amazing? Jesus is proving his claim that he is God and he's bringing his kingdom into the world. So when Jesus says to Levi, follow me, he's saying, I want you in my kingdom, Levi. I want you to have fellowship with God. I want you to have all the blessings of knowing God and living with him forever. What makes this invitation to Levi such a big deal is that Levi is a tax collector. I don't know, we all kind of have ideas of like tax collectors in our mind, right? This is worse than what you're thinking, all right? This is worse. He in no way deserves to take part in the kingdom of God. He in no way deserves to have fellowship with God, to have his sins forgiven in any way, shape, or form. Tax collectors were Jews that worked for the Roman government. A pagan occupying government. They decided they're going to go work for those guys instead of with their countrymen. Just think about that for a second. What they would do is they'd go out and they would bid a job from the government. Had chief tax collectors were going to get to one named Zacchaeus in chapter 19 later. That's a pretty cool meal too. But then you had like these tax farmers. So they'd go out and they would just bid a job and whoever won the bid, they had to go out and collect that amount of money from the citizens, from the people. And so whatever they collected on top of that, that was their commission, and that's how they got paid. So this led these tax farmers, these tax collectors, to be pretty uh, dishonest. They were government-backed extortionists, basically. That's what they would do. 
they had the full force of the government behind them. So it wasn't like if you were a Jew, it wasn't like you could complain to someone. There was no customer service. There was no agency above them. The agency above, all phones rang to Rome. Do you understand what I'm saying? Rome picks up if you didn't like what he was doing. So what's the use? You couldn't get justice. You couldn't get a change. These guys would take whatever they wanted from your family, and there wasn't a thing you could do about it. And they were everywhere. Their little tax booths were everywhere. They'd be in the road. They'd be, you know, all over the place. Because there was a tax for everything. There was a road tax. There was a head tax. A living tax. So you walk by and their booth would be right there by the road. Hey, uh, excuse me, uh, what's in the basket? Oh, bread? Okay, I'm going to take the best of that and you can leave. I'll let you have what's left over. What's in the wagon there, sir? Some crops? Worked all year with those crops? You're going to go sell those? I'm going to take the best first. And whatever you can get for the leftovers, you can try to sell that. This is a tax collector. Are you getting the picture? They robbed and oppressed their own countrymen and financially supported an occupying government so they could get rich. That was their job. That's what they did. To a Jew, this is a very disgusting person, Okay? This is, a, this is a not so great person. They were considered traitors to the nation of Israel and rejectors of God. They sold out. They sold their birthright to get rich. Forget the kingdom and God. I'm getting rich. They're blasphemers. They're considered beyond forgiveness. Are you getting the picture? Yes? This is a tax collector. People hated tax collectors like they hated them, okay? They were social outsiders. They got invited to nothing. (laughs) They were spiritual outcasts. You didn't go socialize at all with a tax collector. They deserved every rotten thing they had coming to them. If anyone deserved to be excluded from the kingdom of God, from forgiveness of sins and blessings of the Lord, that was the tax collector. It was Levi. And Jesus walks right up to his tax booth. He says, follow me. I want you in the kingdom. I want you on my team. I want you on my team? Wow, that's amazing. Follow me. God's grace is is meant to be spread to the undeserving. That's what makes it so wonderful. That's what makes it amazing. Guys, you and I will only spread the grace of God to sinners, to the undeserving, to the degree that we see ourselves as just as undeserving as them. Until and unless that happens, we don't spread the grace of God. But when that happens... We just give it away, right? We'll give it away. What will move us? What will move you to spend your precious time you have during the week and your hard-earned money to make a meal for a Friday night at the coffee oasis for the street kids down there? What's going to actually move you? Guilt will work. You know how long guilt works? Two Fridays. Works two Fridays. Right? It's a great motivator, and it doesn't last. Grace is a far better motivator. So what's going to do this, guys? 
What is going to actually move you to say, I'm going to spend my money and spend my time on Friday night to some of the street kids that hang out at coffee, oasis? They don't deserve it. That's what we think in our mind. They don't really deserve that. So why would I do that? Some of them are on the streets because they burn their bridges with their parents. Some of them are there because they told one lie too many. Some of them are there because they stole something. Not all of them, some of them. So why? Why would I go show grace to them? Just being honest, right? Let's tell the truth when we're in church. This is kind of what we think. Here's why. Because you and I did not deserve the grace of God. And we got it anyway. In spades. In truckloads, we got God's grace. You and I stole too. We stole glory. We stole glory from God that belonged to him. We said, I'll take that. I'll take that for me. We stole too. We refused to thank God. We've lied to God. We burned our bridges with God. But how, you may ask? Good question. I'm glad you asked. How? Through self-righteousness. Through self-righteousness. You can be self-righteous in a religious way, and you can be self-righteous in a secular way. Did you know that? You can. Let me explain. The religious way to be self-righteous is to be like the Pharisees, right? They believe, and we would believe if we were, uh, we were self-righteous in this way, that, uh, okay, because I don't cuss, because I don't get drunk, because I don't sleep around like those unbelievers that are out there, somehow I deserve to be in God's kingdom. I deserve salvation because of that. Because we have passages of the Bible memorized or we listen to only clean Christian music or I pray every morning or I separate myself from those bad influences, somehow that earns me salvation from God. But here is what is underneath that thought and that belief. Here's what's underneath that, that moral and those religious deeds and activities. This is what I'm believing. I don't need God. Does that make sense? I don't need God. God's nice, but I don't need God. And there's a difference between God being nice and God being something I need. You hearing me? Can you hear me even in the back, Everybody? All right. It's, that is religious self-righteousness. And you know what? It's a form of thievery. It's a form of shoplifting. It's prosecutable. It's stealing glory that doesn't belong to me. It doesn't belong to us. We are Levi. Except God's the one we're cheating. Guys, I'm guilty of this too. We do this. It's called thinking you're better than somebody, right? I did it this week. We all do this. This needs to be a safe place where we can confess our sins and repent, right? Here's secular self-righteousness. Secular self-righteousness is believing that salvation comes from what I do as well. This is very interesting. So maybe for us, it's not God and it's not heaven like Heaven described in the Bible. Okay, maybe it's not salvation like that, but maybe it's salvation is personal freedom. That's my salvation. That's what's going to set me free and give me life and give me bliss. If I can have, like, unlimited personal freedom to do whatever I want with whomever I want, whenever I want, however I want. 
Because I'm American. I love to be free in every shape and way possible, right? It's a cultural value of our country and our society. So here's what happens. I have to work really hard not to be tied down to anyone. I have to work real hard not to be tied down to anything, any organization, any group, or any person. If I want that salvation, that bliss of personal freedom. I'm not going to put down roots. I would infringe on my personal freedom. And that's my heaven. That's my salvation. Why would I do that? I'm not going to take risk being vulnerable with people and opening up. How are you doing? I'm fine. How are you? Fine. Thank you. Goodbye. I'm not going to risk being open and vulnerable. That, that's taking away my heaven, my personal freedom. I'm not going to take on responsibility. I'm going to, I'm going to avoid it. I'm going to take as little responsibility as I can. You see what hap- is happening here is underneath all that work, because we work for that, right? But what's underneath the work? What's moving that work into happening? Underneath all that work is a form of secular self-righteousness. It's a belief that I don't need God for salvation, for heaven. I save myself. Check out my schedule. I save myself. I can do this. I got this. I make my own heaven through my hard work, through personal freedom, and I deserve, well, I mean, I deserve it. Look how hard I work for this, right? That is secular self-righteousness, and it's a form of stealing too. It's stealing glory that doesn't belong to us. It belongs to God. We're Levi, guys. Those are the two options. We don't get the option of not being Levi. Have you figured that out yet? It's one or the other. That was our situation before Jesus came to our life and came to our rescue. Jesus saw us like that, and he reached out to us, and he gave us something we didn't deserve, a place in his kingdom, a place at the table of the Lord. He said, follow me. Who, me? Yeah, you. Follow me. Only when we see ourselves as people who have received something that we did not deserve will we be able to spread a message of grace to those that are undeserving. I'm not like you in how I acted. I'm like you in how I believed and what I thought. I'm just as undeserving. The actions may have been different. The undeserving was the same. Is this touching down on anybody today? Grace not only spreads to undeserving people, but it also spreads by paying a price. Grace spreads how? By paying a price. Look at verse 29. There is a lot in this one verse. We've gone from Levi out on the street. Now we're in the dinner. We're at the dinner party. And Levi made for him a great feast in his house. There was a large company of tax collectors and others. That's a nice way of putting it. Reclining at table with them. Okay? Levi is so moved by the grace that Jesus gives to him that he decides to host a celebration party in the honor of Jesus. He's the man of the hour. It's for him. This is amazing. Levi invites the only friends that he has, which are other scallywags, basically, right? 
There are other tax collectors that everybody hates. And they're only there probably because everyone hates them. They didn't have another party to go to. They're outcasts, right? He invites him to be exposed to the one that changed his life. He goes back in with them. We're having a party with Jesus and a feast in his honor. Levi has experienced grace, and guess what? He immediately turns around and exposes his lost friends to the very same grace by inviting them to Jesus. He invites Jesus into his home, and get this, Jesus accepts. Guys, Jesus didn't accept a thank you. Jesus accepted an invitation into his house. Jesus went into his house went into his home. In those days, there were very detailed rules of how you were at table with people, table fellowship. If you've been reading the book along with this, you guys know some of the backstory to this. It, was, it wasn't spoken, but everybody knew the rules. And you didn't cross the boundaries, and you didn't break the, the rules on how to do this. To eat in someone's house was to accept them and to be accepted by them. If, so if your relationship had been torn, if you're kind of like the black sheep of the family, if you kind of have been cut off from a friend and they invited you to a meal and you accept, that wasn't just to have a meal with them. That was forgiveness. You are being restored to status. You are here now instead of out there where you used to be. It was reconciliation, which is the bringing together of a broken relationship. That's what's going on here. And Jesus is, what what he's doing is he's welcoming more sinners. He's welcoming more tax collectors into the kingdom of God by associating with them. Now he's gone and done it. Now he's gone and done it. Okay, so one tax collector, we could kind of overlook that. Okay, maybe you didn't know the rules, Jesus. You don't do that. But you went into a whole room full of them now, and you broke bread with them? He's just crossed the boundary marker of a good teacher, someone who knows the word of God. He shouldn't do that, and he did it. Jesus just wrecked his good name, by eating in Levi's house. You guys see that? And he did it on purpose. It wasn't like he didn't know. He's the son of God, right? Here's the deal. The Pharisees, there's three groups. You got Jesus and the disciples in the story, right? You got uh, the Pharisees and scribes. You got the tax collectors and sinners. Those are the three groups in play in this story. So the Pharisees, they believe that by being morally pure, and separate from the unclean world and sinners that they would bring the kingdom of God. That's what they believed. This is how this was going to happen. God was going to come back and restore Israel. Here's why. They believed that God would see how clean and how holy his people had made themselves. And he'd be impressed by that. Oh, I can come. I'm a holy God now. I can come live with some holy people. That he would want to come and dwell with them again. And that philosophy hasn't died out. We just don't call it Phariseeism, do we? So So the Pharisees would not dare go into the home of a Gentile or a tax collector, because that would make them unclean. And in being separated... Being sequestered off and being holy and pure, that's how you bring the kingdom of God. That's how this happens. They wouldn't do this. Jesus does. 
Two things are happening simultaneously in this meal, in this one verse. And I want you guys to see this. This is important. When Jesus shares the table with tax collectors, he is attaching his good and holy name to them. They're with me. Right? And at the very same time, he is absorbing their wicked name. The scum of the earth name. Their despicable name. Right? He's absorbing that. It's happening at the same time. Through this meal, sinners get all the benefit of being connected to the Son of God. And guess what? The Son of God gets all the disadvantage of being connected to sinners. Now, how do we know this is taking place? It's right here in this verse. Jesus pays a price for extending grace to sinners. That's how we know this is taking place. He pays a price. His reputation takes a big through this meal in this very first meal it cost Jesus some of his reputation it chipped away at it and it keeps being chipped away at through the entire book of Luke until we get to the meal in the upper room by the time he's having the meal at the upper room this will cost his life it'll cost his life guys that's what makes grace so amazing That's what makes it so amazing. Christ willfully let his reputation become contaminated so that our reputation before God could be cleansed. Are you tracking with me? I want to say that again. Christ willfully let his reputation become contaminated by association so that our reputation before God could become cleansed. There's a great exchange happening in this meal, and it's going to culminate on the real great exchange, which is going to be on the cross. This is a precursor to the cross. You and I cannot extend the grace of God to unbelievers from the comfort of our own home and the comfort of our own churches, guys. You know that, family? Can't do it, won't happen. God has not called us to make fortresses out of our homes fortresses out of our church to keep out the world and just lob scripture verses over the wall, little sermons over the wall. That's not how this mission happens. He has called us to go. Grace goes. Grace moves. Grace like gets out of the glass beaker and spreads in the air. Do you understand what I'm saying? Are you seeing this? It goes where the unbelievers are, knowing that sometimes it will cost our reputation with religious people. It will. He's called us to open up our homes to our neighbors, neighbors that believe differently than we believe, so that they might have a chance at knowing Jesus, that that they might have a chance at tasting grace. And we start, when we start spreading grace, I love that phrase, grace spreaders. Cal said it, and I can't, get, I can't get it out of my mind. When we start being grace spreaders, like Jesus was a grace spreader, sometimes religious folk are going to trash our name. You know that? So just get ready. It means you're doing it right. <laughs> They're going to talk. Why are you eating with them? In fact, actually, that's exactly what they said here. Why are you eating with them? Don't you know who they are? Don't you know what they believe? 
What were you doing over there late last night with them? What are people going to think about you? I mean, don't you care how that might rub off on your kids? Yeah, let's throw the kids in front of the bus, right? So, so that's fear of man. So I'm thinking about this. I'm thinking, okay, what, what trumps fear of man? Because we're all controlled by that to some degree or, or another. What gives us the power to push through fear of man? What moves us to spread grace to unbelievers when it might cost us our reputation with them a little bit? Here's the answer. To see how much more it costs Christ to extend grace to you and to me. It cost him far more than his reputation. Far more. Jesus knew that if he got... <laughs> Jesus knew that if he got close to us and our sin, our unbelief, it'd ruin his reputation. They'd call him a drunk if he got too close to us. They'd call him a glutton. They call him a friend of sinners and not call him the Son of God. And he did it anyway. Amen? Man. It would ruin his name so much that it would eventually kill him. They'd call him a traitor. Hmm, what was a tax collector? Hmm. You see the swapping? You see the exchanging? And he did it anyway so that we could gain his name. That we could gain the name of being called a child of God. 1 John 3, 1a says this. See. See. Don't hear. See. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. That's right, amen. All because Jesus traded our reputation on, on the cross. He traded our reputation for his reputation. He traded his name for our name on the cross. You know what? That makes you want to do something, doesn't it? That makes you want to go somewhere and share that with somebody, doesn't it? That makes you want to give up a little time and a little money, doesn't it? It should. That's the power of grace. Grace is what God is using to transform us and transform this world. When grace spreads, it accomplishes something powerful. Grace brings healing through repentance. Now, I know we don't like that word repentance. Can I just get some grace and just, uh, you know, hold on the repentance? We're going to talk about that. Grace brings healing through repentance. This comes from verse 31 through 32. And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. And Jesus is employing a little bit of sarcasm there when he says the righteous. Because he knows there is no righteous, no, not one, right? Jesus is on a mission. This is a mission statement. I have come. Remember we talked about that last week? Jesus is on a mission. His mission is to heal sin-sick sinners. To bind up the wounds that we have inflicted on ourselves through a rebellion against God. 
He's on a mission to heal our disease of soul that's been caused by seeking fulfillment apart from him. He calls himself a doctor of sinners. And he's come to administer the medicine of grace. That's his mission. Jesus says that this medicine gets into your wound through repentance. See, this is important. People say, hey, Jesus, you're a healer, and I want to be healed. Well, how does that happen? He's telling us how that happens through repentance. The way his medicine of grace gets out of the syringe and into your bloodstream to do its healing work, if you will, is through our repentance. Repentance is a comprehensive reorientation of our life toward God instead of away from God. It's a complete change of direction. It means our thinking and our desires have changed directions. Now we are desiring God. Before we were desiring other things, we've changed. This is repentance. It's the turning towards God. When we repent, every aspect of our life, every aspect of our life, our love life, our financial life, our work life, our values, all start turning towards God. When our back was to Him, now we want to see His face. That's repentance. Repentance is the evidence that someone has truly received saving grace. A grace that can heal and restore and redeem. Repentance is receiving and responding. That's all it is. It's receiving and responding God's grace. I want to unpack that. Repentance is receiving God's grace. That means agreeing with God that we are sick with sin. Through and through. Top of my head, bottom of my shoes. The way I spend my money, the way I make my decisions, the way I respond. Like everyone's trying to hurt me. Instead of taking it the best way possible, every part of my life has been touched by sin. It's agreeing that we are, in fact, fatally, terminally, incurably sick with sin. Repentance means simply agreeing with God that all of our attempts to fix ourselves have been colossal failures. In fact, they've made matters worse. And we're just simply agreeing with God on that. That's what repentance is. Repentance means agreeing with God that our only hope will come if God himself reaches down and changes us and nothing else and no one else. That's all repentance is. What did Levi do to receive the grace of God, family? What did he do to receive the grace of God? Nothing. He didn't do a thing, did he? Right? He was just sitting there, minding his own business, counting his stacks. And Jesus found him sitting there in his, t- in his tax booth, cheating people and robbing people. Just sitting there doing what he always did. Right? And Jesus found him. What did you do to get the grace of God, brothers and sisters? Nothing. Nothing. You and I were just sitting there in our sin like we always were, doing what we always did, and Jesus came walking by and said, You. I'm talking to you. I want you to follow me. I want you to be in my kingdom. I want you to have a place at the table. What's the one thing you need, guys? What's the one thing that you need to have Jesus. Nothing. 
All you need is nothing. Isn't that interesting? All you need is nothing. You can't get it without nothing. But all you need is nothing. Repentance means admitting that we are terminal and we cannot heal ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. Secondly, repentance is responding. It is responding to God's grace. When we realize that we did nothing to deserve God's forgiveness and blessing, when we realize that God moved towards us before we ever moved towards Him, that He sought us before we ever thought of, I think I might seek God. I think I, think I might be a seeker. God sought us. We respond with our whole life best we know how, right? The Bible says that Levi leaves everything from his old life behind and follows Jesus. He walks away from his profession. You know what that means? That means he doesn't just leave all the money he is making. It means that he leaves knowing he might not have another profession. Right? Now where do I get that? Everybody hates him. He's a cheat. He's a thief. He's a blasphemer, right? He's got a rep. Who's going to hire a guy like that? And he doesn't care. He says, I'm following Jesus. I don't care. I'm following Jesus. And not only that, but Levi decides to celebrate. He loses his job and throws a party. We throw parties when we get our job. He throws a party when he loses his job. What is going on with this guy? What is happening? He has no job. He's lost his income. His savings is going to start dwindling any minute now. But instead of saving his money, he decides to blow money on a celebration party so he can call all of his other tax collectors to hear what Jesus told him so they could get what he got. It's that good, that good of news for him. Talk about a radical reorientation of your priorities. That's like upside-down economics or something. That is what repentance looks like, guys. That is what life change looks like. That's repentance. Uh, My friend Ian Kaiser, he's a pastor at a little church in Mississippi, and he says this about repentance. In fact, he says this about this very passage. I want you to listen. Pastor Ian says, Healing comes through repentance. And when we repent, we find more grace. We find ourselves somehow at the table with Christ. Isn't that great? The one thing so many of us are avoiding is changing direction, admitting we're wrong. I don't want to repent. It's the very thing that brings us healing. When we admit that we cannot fix ourselves, Christ doesn't shame us at that moment, guys. He's not going to shame you when you come to that conclusion, when you see that light. I was wrong. I made it worse. He doesn't stick his finger in your face and go, ha ha, yeah, now you know. Now you're going to get what's yours. He doesn't shame you. He's not going to shame you. He's not going to exclude us because we weren't holy enough and we didn't measure up enough to his perfect standard. You know what he does? He pulls up a chair 
He pulls up a chair at the table of the Lord and says, sit down. I've got a place waiting for you. And he begins to administer the medicine, the grace. That's what he does. Amen? If you are self-righteous about your religious activities or your moral report card that you're really proud of, you need to repent of your glory theft. You need to repent of your glory stealing so that you can receive the grace of God. You don't have to be perfect. You can't be perfect. Jesus is all the perfection that you need. You don't need to add to that. Okay? If you think that you, your sins are too many, or maybe that they're more powerful than God's grace, you need to repent of your glory stealing too. Your sins are not more spectacular than Jesus. Amen? Your sins are not stronger than God. Listen to me. Jesus wasn't just a man. He was the God-man. He was the God-man. The one who died for your sins is God. That means that his blood has power that's stronger than your sins. God's grace is greater than all our sins. Isn't that great? God calls us all to repent. All to repent, whether we're the rule-keeping sinner or the rule-breaking sinner. He calls us, calls us all to repent so that we can receive his healing grace. I want to invite you and encourage you to do that today. God may be speaking to you right now in your chair and wanting to do that with you right now. And so my encouragement to you is say, listen to him and respond. Okay, I love you guys. I want to pray and just give you a moment to do that.